0: If you live in the western United States, you already know that burn morel season 2021 is almost upon us. So I wanted to give you the heads up about burn morel maps from my friends Kristen and Trent Blizzard over at Modern Forager. They take U.S. Forest Service data about wildfires and then pick out the best potential morel burns across almost every state in the western U.S., You can find the maps at modernforager.com. They will take your burn morel game to the next level. And again, that's modernforager.com for burn morel maps. Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're joined by the magnanimous mushroom mogul, Britt Bunyard. Britt is the founder, publisher, and editor-in-chief of the mycology journal, Fungi. Britt received a master's in botany from Clemson University and a PhD in plant pathology from Penn State University. He has worked academically and played very amateurishly as a mycologist his entire career, writing scientifically for many research journals, popular science magazines, and books. He has served as an editor for both mycological and entomological research journals and mushroom guidebooks. A popular evangelizer on all things fungal, Britt has been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, National Geographic Magazine, PBS's Nova television program, and in 2016, he was made the executive director of the Telluride Mushroom Festival. He's given talks on mushrooms ranging across so many different subjects that I'm excited to learn what he's focused on now and what he sees as the future of mycophile culture. Britt, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Great. Thanks for having me. What an introduction.
0: You know, I think it is well-deserved. Well, you know, I'm excited to learn more about, like I said in the intro, what you are focusing on now, because you've given, I mean, fantastic talks on different aspects from psychedelics to the origins of fungi to really everything under the sun when it comes to mushrooms. So I'm excited to learn about what you're into now and obviously talk about the history of the amazing Fungi Magazine But before we get all into it, I was really excited to know how you discovered mushrooms, how fungi became this passion to the point where you created a media
1: empire. Yeah, I often sit and wonder, how did I get here myself? So I started out like a lot of kids, was really into nature, grew up on a small farm in Ohio. And as far as the mushroom connection goes, our family was not really very connected to mushrooms. But in the spring, they were pretty passionate about going out looking for morel mushrooms. Of course. And both my mom and dad's families, both, they were from Indiana, they would go out looking for morels. And in fact, they just called them mushrooms. I don't know how old I was. I think maybe getting into middle school, wandering around in the woods during the summer and other times of the year and noticing all kinds of other mushrooms that were obviously not morels and starting to ask questions about those things and bugs and fish and everything to my dad, because who else would I ask? And he was definitely not a biologist and knew things about farming, but that's about it. And so when I'd ask questions about mushrooms, he would literally, I remember vividly, he would literally say, well, it can't be mushrooms because those come up in the spring. You know, we go picking those. And (laughs) I'm like, I know these are mushrooms. And then he stopped and said, oh, I guess that's right. There are other kinds of mushrooms because you can get mushrooms at the grocery store that they cultivate. And he admitted, I just don't know anything about them. But there's a guy at work that I work with. He's really into mushrooms and seems to be knowledgeable. I'll ask him. And so he came home and said, hey, this guy at work that I told you about, my buddy, he's in like a club. It's called The Ohio Mycological Society, which, of course, is still a a club to this day. And then later in life, I, you know, flash forward, I actually was a member of that club when I lived in Ohio. He's like, this guy, you know, he's heard me mentioning questions you have about all kinds of things. And I just don't know. So he wrote down the title of a book. He said, you got to get this book for your your son. That was the Audubon Guide to Mushrooms of North America by Gary Lenkoff. And I was a kid, you know, and so I remember getting this book and just carrying it with me everywhere. And I don't mean just in the woods, but like everywhere, like at all times, I was just so enthralled that there could be so many types of mushrooms. And that's how I got into it. But when I went to, so I was pretty interested in most biological topics. And so when I went to college at Kent State University, that's where I was an undergrad in Northeast Ohio. Uh, I was a biology major, but I was really, at the time, even more interested in insects. And so I started doing a research project with a famous uh, dipterologist, which is a person that studies flies. I did a research project as an undergrad, and the guy said, well, if you want to do a project with me on flies, which I was really crazy about. It's like, I had this project I've been wanting to have a student do for years, but no one's interested. And the reason is because it also involves mushrooms, and, you know, nobody that knows about bugs also knows about mushrooms. But we have a really famous mycologist here, Samuel Mazur, who just died just a few months ago. Oh. In fact, in the upcoming edition of Fungi Magazine, we have an obituary about him. So uh, my advisor sent me over to Sam Mazur, and that's where it all began. Sam was one of the great Alexander H. Smith students and knew mushrooms really well. And I learned, I first learned from Sam. So. I, really got so interested in mushrooms from Sam and doing this project that I then just sort of kind of switched gears and went totally you know the mushroom route. And so as a master student and a doctoral student, I, I was a mycologist, I was no longer studying entomology, although my research still to this day is with insects and mushrooms. So there's not very many people interested in both of those groups at the same time. So it's not like we get together at conferences or anything because there's really like five of us in the world anyways, that's the kind of the weird sort of research area that I carved out for myself. And, and that's how it all began, basically, as a kid getting interested in it.
0: Well, and that's a fascinating symbiosis, really. There are so many examples of bug and fungal relationships, whether it's pathogenic, whether it's mutualistic, you know, those ambrosia beetles that farm fungi, obviously, famously leafcutter ants that farm fungi, termites in Africa that farm fungi. Uh, yeah. and yeah. I went down the rabbit hole then on your work on flies and their relationship with macrofungi just to give us a little bit something to chew on there something we might not have known about what are some of the basics of how flies and macrofungi interact with each other
1: Yeah well you hit on you hit on some uh, famous ones that that most people probably have heard about like ambrosia beetles and especially the termites and ants that Although termites and ants are not very closely related, they both through convergent evolution look pretty similar and they even do very similar things, both farming fungi, which is kind of neat. But there's uh, a whole host of other interactions that fungi and insects have and it sort of stands to reason that insects are the dominant animal on the planet. In fact, they're the dominant organism on the planet. The vast majority of known organisms are insects and fungi also Uh, while are not one of the more dominant organisms on the planet so far as named species, it's entirely likely that you know in a hundred years' time we'll know a lot more about how many more species there are that we currently don't know about. But they're certainly one of the dominant organisms on the planet as they seem to control most, if not all, the plants on the planet. And they have an obligate intertwined life in all sorts of habitats. But some of the more interesting things about... The fungi, and especially the mushroom fungi, the macro fungi with insects, is a lot of them seem to get transported around, almost like the situation with uh, higher plants that produce flowers and entice a vector of its pollen to take it directly to another member of the same species, rather than simply relying on the vagaries of wind and water and stuff to pollinate. And it seems a number of fungi, if not a lot of fungi, do this as well. And that's one of the areas that I was working on quite a long time ago. And it's kind of interesting that it seems a number of mushrooms seem to have come to rely on insects to move spores around. There's other really interesting ties in as well. You mentioned a, a number of pathogens, pathogenic fungi get moved around by insects. And there's all sorts of yeasts and things that live In SAP and whatnot. I mean, the as one example, the uh, of an interaction with yeasts, which are really dominant forms of fungi in a number of different habitats. Everyone knows about the so-called fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, and this is a fly in a group of flies that's just huge. The family Drosophilidae is one of the most successful families of organisms on the planet. There's Drosophila species and related genera in that family that. Have all kinds of different niches all over the planet feeding on things like petroleum and petroleum. Dimmler, wow. Yeah, and rotting fruit, and, and you name it. I mean, they can eat meat, they can eat plant matter, they can eat rotting matter. Hawaii alone, I don't know how many species of Drosophila there are, but I know there was a very famous paper in the 70s that had already discovered over 300 species of Drosophila just in Hawaii alone. So it's pretty astounding. How Successful this group is. Well, this group, kind of like humans, comes from really super humble beginnings. It seems that all the Drosophila species we have, which are thousands, seem to all come from a really small group a long time ago that were feeders on sap flows of trees and cacti. So when you see a great big tree in your front lawn, often where the branches come together in a fork or even a wound. It kind of weeps and it'll it'll just do this all year long throughout the year. And it's the tree's in no danger. This is just a feature of a lot of large trees. Well, that sap that's coming out, of course, has some sugars. And so there's a whole habitat there of yeasts and molds and things that live in there. And if you look real close with like a hand lens, you'll see there's all kinds of things swimming around in this sap. And there's not even that much sap there, but there's maggots and nematodes. And so a lot of flies... That's the only thing they do is inhabit these sap flows. And you might say, well, carbohydrates come out of Where's the protein source? How do they live? Well, the protein source is from yeasts that live in these things. And that's sort of how apparently, according to what fly biologists say, that that's where all the species of Drosophila came from. So I found it kind of intriguing that the few species of Drosophila and some other higher flies that I study that feed on nothing but mushrooms it kind of stands to reason that they should like fungi because they probably came from ancestors that were fungal feeders in the form of feeding on yeast coming from these sap flows from trees and cacti. Anyways, that's no doubt something that probably no one really looks for in nature, because why would you? I mean, you're looking for <laughs> larger, obvious things that are pretty. No one looks at, at garbage coming up the side of a tree, but turns out, you know, that's a habitat for some organisms.
0: Well, the humble sap microbiome is responsible for this, what I'm going to dub an apex organism that can feed on almost everything. It has hundreds of species derivations. That's absolutely fascinating. And of course, there'd be no way of knowing if they developed their love, their taste for fungi on that yeast and then kind of extrapolated that outwards to macro fungi. But I like that relationship. I'm going to adopt that one.
1: <laughs> well, and a lot of the organisms that a lot of different insects that are feeding on rotting material fruit and and meat and garbage and stuff you know they're not necessarily so much feeding on that matter as much as they are on the yeast and other fungi and bacteria that are feeding on that matter because that's where the protein is in the yeast and other molds there so you just never really know what's going on necessarily until you kind of look start looking closely i mean All the time in scientific journals, there's amazing discoveries found on really common stuff that's all around us. It's just no one really thought to look or didn't look and thought to look in a different way. So a lot of times it's, it's obvious stuff that just wasn't obvious. It was hidden in plain sight. Yeah. I mean, you just
0: offered me a huge new perspective, which is the idea that when something's feasting on a decaying, any kind of decaying matter, they're actually feasting on the whole microbiome that's gathering around that. So of course that makes a lot of sense. But like you said, it's so obvious it was maybe in plain sight. And I guess for you with your work, were you focused on that spore dispersal element of the relationship with diptera or what did your research look at in that time?
1: So, you know, it started out as an undergrad, just wanting to kind of catalog what's going on with mushrooms. You know, we know there's maggots in pretty much any mushroom you find. And what are those maggots? Most of the time, those little worms that you see in there are the larval stages of flies that are obligate mycophagous insects. They have to feed on mushrooms. They don't feed on other things. You could find beetles and some other things in mushrooms. But for the most part, they're feeding on the fly larvae. So what's going on there? Well, you can't really identify immature insects from their immature stages. You have to rear them out as an adult. And that's why no one's really known a whole lot about what was going on in the mushrooms. So the project as an undergrad was simply just to rear these things to adulthood and, and find out what's going on. What kind of flies live in these mushrooms in Northeast, northeast Ohio, where I was a student. And, you know, you quickly start finding there's certain families that have a few species that live in these mushrooms. And okay, well, that's pretty cool. So the next thing is, are they generalists or are they, are any specialized? Maybe some could be specialized on mushrooms that are woody conks on the sides of trees. Maybe some are specialized on things that are more toxic to mammals and things like that. Or maybe there's a size or a time of the year. And so, sure enough, all of those things do come into play, you know, because when you go in, into a habitat, if you see two organisms that appear to be pretty similar and feed on the same thing and in the same way, there's a rule called the competitive exclusion principle, which says one of the two will outcompete the other unless they come up with a way to sort of share the resources. So they either feed different times of the day or different times of the year or there's something that keeps them from coming into competition because if resources dwindle or there's gets to be too many of them there will be competition and one will exclude the other so using that i was looking for what sort of differences i was i was finding and there are some differences in so much as some types feed more on tougher you know they're able to feed on tougher more woody mushrooms like polypores, and some are not. There didn't seem to be any difference as far as toxins. None of the deadly mushrooms are toxic at all to any of the mushroom feeding flies. Hmm. There's some seasonality. You know, some species of a group come out early in the year and some come out later in the year. But I was sort of disappointed that I never really found any real specialized flies that feed only on one type of mushroom or one group of mushrooms. And I sort of came to the conclusion that they really can't afford to because mushrooms, first of all, are so ephemeral. They're not out for a very long period of time unless they're maybe one of these hard, woody conks on the side of a tree. But most of the mushrooms are soft and pretty ephemeral. In a bad year, they may not fruit at all. You know, there's a lot of mushrooms that you just won't see any in a bad year. So I think they all have to be pretty much generalists and be able to feed on chanterelles and morels and boletes and ammonitis, they have to be able to pretty much sniff out any kind of a mushroom and feed on them. Otherwise, they're just going to be too limited. And and I've been doing this for over 30 years, over 35 years, and I haven't really seen any specialism. They're all, most mushrooms are pretty much seen as a mushroom that's food to all of the mushroom feeding flies, strangely enough.
0: Untangling that web of Specialization and who's associated with who is always a tricky thing to do in biology. So to come to the end of that road and realize, well, they're actually all generalists is kind of a, an interesting conclusion. And I think for us mushroom hunters, then, we can all take heart that when we see larvae in our big porcini, hey, at least it's continuing the life cycle of these diptera, and we, you know, maybe be a little less
1: crestfallen. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. And, you know, a lot of people don't seem to mind too much if there's a few maggots in their mushrooms and they just go ahead and kind of look the other way and eat them anyways. (laughs) So arguably, uh, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to that are chemists have said that arguably the most nutritious part of a mushroom is actually the flora and fauna living inside of it, you know, the insects and other things. So as long as you can kind of tolerate a little bit of damage, you're probably getting, you know, more nutrition with A little bit of maggots, and if they're pretty far gone, and that's pretty gross. And furthermore, you know, they could be contaminated by something that's toxic. But in nature, you know, to find anything that's totally pristine and has no bugs on it, it's going to be pretty hard to do. They're they may be really small, and you can't see them yet, but they're already there.
0: Right, but at least they're nutritious. (laughs) Well, how did this eventually cascade into Fungi Magazine? Because you know that's. Such a big part of the mycophile community, and it doesn't sound like you had an experience in journalism per se, or you weren't, you know, running the newspaper there at Kent State, or maybe you were. But how did this <laughs> then turn? How did this then turn into Fungi Magazine?
1: Yes, just as you suspected, I absolutely had no experience in journalism to be sure. Like a lot of academics, academic journals, academic scientific journals rely on. Basically, other scientists volunteering as editors and proofreading stuff and putting it together. And that's how an academic society works. So, I had actually worked as a review editor for some entomological journals and then became the editor. I'm even having to think about this myself. And then I became the editor of NAMA's newsletter and journal. And NAMA is the North American Mycological Association, which is not the Academic Mycological Society of North America, but it's more of the amateurs and enthusiasts and sort of the umbrella group of all the uh, mycological societies that so-called amateurs enthusiasts belong to. So I was doing their journal. And, you know, over time, you become pretty good friends with some other people who are editors of other journals. And we tossed around the idea of, things to do differently with the NAMA journal and they were kind of resistant because they'd been around a long time doing a journal a certain way and having a certain look to it and things like that and so there were some things that they just weren't interested in doing oh just in talking over a few years several of us you know would joke about how if I had my way here's what kind of journal I would have or whatever and at one point we just I forget who one of us said we should start our own journal, and this is the way we could do it. And we all agreed, yeah, we're definitely going to do this because we'd had too many good ideas that had gone by the wayside. And so I think we decided, okay, well for sure we're going to do a journal. This is for sure what it's going to look like, and and for sure we're going to have this in it and this in it. Now we just got to come up with who's going to you know pay the bill, who's going to you know <laughs> right. sign a check to get this first issue printed. And then pretty much all the emails stopped. And so I think by default, maybe I pulled out my credit card and paid for it and sent out a copy to thousands of people. And strangely, you know, people subscribed and that's how it all began. And then uh, we're coming up on our 14th year in print now. So we've been around for a fair bit.
0: Yeah, congratulations. I mean, as far as I know, it's the only <laughs> ma- it's the only magazine uh, dedicated to mushrooms and fungi and it's really a great mix of academic amateur was that your intention or or what did you guys think when you were putting it together were you thinking yeah we're going to make this academically rigorous but also include kind of general hobbyist culture
1: yeah that's exactly basically we we want and there are a few other mycological journals out there in north america there's uh, believe it or not four or five i'm not sure if all of them are still printing or if, i think most of them are online only now but there's uh, Mushroom the Journal, which has been around a long time, and it's not an academic journal, but the others are all academic journals. And so, you know, most of our readership would not really be very interested in a rigorous academic journal that doesn't have pretty pictures and is, you know, the minutia of this group or that group of fungi. I mean, there's no reason to reinvent that. So we pretty much wanted to have kind of everything else that doesn't really make it into academic journals and be an outlet for even mushroom essays and poetry and pretty pictures. And, you know, the academic journals at the time still didn't even have color photos. They would have black and white photos or maybe no photos. So, you know, we decided we want to have great, big, pretty pictures. And there really wasn't anything like that in North America. In Europe, there's long been mycological journals in europe and in japan there's long been mycological journals because people are really crazy about mushrooms there and these magazines have beautiful color glossy photos and essays and all kinds of really interesting things and we we just figured there had to be a market for it here in north america even though you know we've been kind of slow to catch on to the wild mushroom craze but it turns out there definitely was a market and, and we've had no problem getting enough subscribers to pay the bills since then. But we kind of modeled Fungi Magazine on a British journal that's no longer in print. It was called The Mycologist. It was geared mostly to amateurs and they would have some academic things. And then there was an Italian journal, which was kind of printed on and off again. It was really, really pretty with flashy pictures. So in addition to some kind of semi-academic articles on maybe reviewing a group of mushrooms or a family or a genus and how to know them and even having some microscopy and stuff like that. We typically have uh, essays, poetry, photography, and a number of different topics. And usually the magazine comes out five times a year. So there's four seasonal issues and one special topics issue. So the seasonal ones, You know, when it's coming up on spring, we'll have spring mushrooms like morels and things like that. So the regular features like the culinary feature will have what to do with these things in your kitchen and and preservation and stuff. And there's a regular photography section and a regular medicinal mushroom section, etc. In addition to these other articles that are one off and on different topics, we have regular writers that write regular features as well. So it's like pretty much any other magazine you might subscribe to. It's just that it's all fungi and all mushrooms. And if you're into that sort of thing, it's like the greatest thing ever. And if you're not, it's like the weirdest thing ever. But right now, uh, mushrooms, wild mushrooming has gotten quite popular.
0: So it sounds like then it is very much the makeup of what you'd expect from a magazine. You know, I had this image of, Brit kind of starting it as this one-man show, and you're out writing articles and capturing pictures, but it sounds like from the beginning, there is a a bigger team involved to contribute content and really make make the magazine.
1: Oh, yeah. There's a a very big team. In fact, I think the the main thing I do and sort of the key thing that I bring to the magazine is I don't actually really write very much, but I know... You mentioned at the outset, me traveling around a lot and giving a lot of lectures and stuff. So I know pretty much most of the mycologists in North America. And so I can tap people to get them to write stuff or help write things or send send photos for an article or whatever. So most of what I do when manuscripts come are sent to Fungi Magazine, since I'm the editor-in-chief, I review it at the outset and decide if this is something that typically we would print or not. If it is, Then I send it to several of the other review editors and contributing editors for their comment and to see if it's written well or fact-based and all that sort of stuff. And then we take it from there. So, yeah, there's a number of other regular contributing editors that write the lion's share of the articles and book reviews and stuff like that. Mostly what I do besides review the stuff when it first comes in and track down writers or photos or whatever is I'll write a few book reviews. I write the editor's letter at the beginning and that's about it. Really. I, I don't write that much stuff that's in the, in the magazine, thankfully, because I, I'm not really a very good writer and and by right, not a very good writer. I mean, I, it takes me forever to write something, you know, an actual writer can crank stuff out quick because they know what they're doing, but that's not me. So I agonize over stuff. But anyways, to answer your question, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that are involved on the masthead of Fungi Magazine on the second page or whatever. It lists all the different reviewers and review editors and contributing editors. We have two illustrators. We have two intern illustrators now. So there's a whole team. The the production editor, Jan Hammond, who now lives in Alabama, she's probably the most important person because she's the whole reason we look so good. And She's mm. a wizard at putting it together. And then there's a webmaster. So there's a whole bunch of people, believe it or not. So,
0: Well, and you guys are still printing magazines. You mentioned some other journals have switched to online only. And that was one of my big questions is how you guys are evolving in this age where it seems like magazines just aren't proliferating as much, but you guys maintain the print magazine.
1: Yeah, even with uh, newsprint and magazines going more and more to online content, Still in this day and age, there's more mag- there's more magazine titles coming out each year than there were the year before. Probably fifty percent of them go under, but the next year there will be like fifty two percent new magazines coming online. So there's there's ever more titles coming out all the time, and again a lot of them are online only or some are, are print and online. I'm not too much of a fan of online stuff, so I subscribe to all kinds of different magazines and most of the ones I get are print and I even get um, newspapers that are printed as well as online content. So we've been talking about making the switch to or making the addition, I should say, making the addition to an, an online version or a digital version for readers and devices, but there still isn't a whole lot of demand for it amongst our subscribers. But demand or not, we're going to be coming out with it here very soon, like in just a few months, because I think demand will increase once people see what it is and give it a try. And also just the the cost to print and especially the cost to mail stuff has been skyrocketing in the last few years. And this year, in addition to that, the reliability of the mail was just dreadful. It was taking a lot longer to get stuff delivered. So all of those things are kind of conspiring to tell us it's time for us to move more into the digital version. And and for people that don't like a digital version, I totally understand it. I don't like digital versions of stuff either. So we'll still have a print version as long as anyone wants that. But we will, like everybody else, start moving into the digital version as well the digital
0: world well and there's such an explosion of a digital community around mushrooms and fungi especially on social media platforms oh yeah that's where mushroom hour was born was me doing goofy videos on instagram and there's just this hunger for people to learn more about these organisms because they're scrolling through a feed you know that's largely the same kind of content and so, when something like a mushroom comes up—a big, flashy picture of a mushroom—people just get excited about it. So, I think you have a huge digital audience to tap into there. Uh, so, I think that-
1: I think you're right. And and my kids, of course, they have no interest in anything that's printed. They do everything uh, on their devices, and they're like, you know, when you finally get with it and get around to having an e version, of course, you can do so much more with it. You can have links to stuff and videos and so many more things. So I mean, it will be exciting to get into that as well. So I'm looking forward to it, even though I'm still going to be flipping through my paper copy, just like a lot of other readers. But there's definitely a lot of other things that can be done. And so I see it as a plus, and we'll just see where it goes.
0: Well, and I love the paper copies, because I love having them around the house. It's like the perfect coffee table thing. And the pictures, you can't ever replace a picture, a big full page picture of a mushroom on glossy, nice magazine paper. So I think there'll always be a place for both. And I'm curious if there are any powerful opportunities that making the magazine afforded you. I mean, I'm sure there's hundreds of stories and unique things that you got to do and people you got to know on such a deeper level because you were working with them on the magazine. But maybe a couple of things that stand out that were opportunities where you thought, wow, if I didn't go down this path and make this magazine, I would have never got to meet this person or do this thing.
1: Yeah, well, uh, if we had like all day to talk about this, there's just dozens and dozens of things that I think about all the time that you know, I don't really make a salary doing this magazine or whatever. Thankfully, my wife has a good job and, and makes enough money for us to afford our lifestyle and everything. But at the same time, my lifestyle includes lots of travel and getting into the woods all over the world and everything. And yeah, there's no way that would have happened if I had remained a university professor and not kind of shifted from that into doing this magazine business and visiting with clubs and museums and giving lectures and stuff. So when I was starting out, I mentioned um, at the beginning, when I was starting out, what the first book I got on mushrooms and really got me going down the rabbit hole was this book by Gary Lindcoff and that was in the early 80s when that book came out and when I got it and I grew up to many decades later become very good friends with Gary Lindcoff and until he died just a couple years ago you know we would do stuff together all the time and that was a pretty amazing situation where you can kind of have your childhood idol That you can grow up with and become working colleagues, you know, I mean, how many different career paths and and endeavors can that happen? I mean, you could never have a like all star Hall of Fame pitcher on your favorite professional baseball team that you idolize as a kid, you could never grow up and decades later, be on the same team as that guy because right. the guy couldn't be pitching that long, but that couldn't happen. But in some fields like, you know, in academic fields, that, that can happen. That's one thing that uh, really happened as a result of kind of shifting gears more from doing academic type mycology to getting more into doing stuff with amateur clubs. And uh, which is frankly a lot more enjoyable because the so-called amateurs are the ones that frankly, know mushrooms a lot better than the academics and they're way more enthusiastic. So, I got in with them pretty early on, but just some other things too. A lot of the travel and one of our riders led for 25 years, these mushroom tours all throughout Italy. And I've always loved Italy and and been to Italy a couple of times. And he approached me and said he was stepping down from that. And they had wanted me to kind of take over his role. So it's been now six years or so. I think that, I've been doing this with this Italian group leading these mushroom tours in Italy and also have branched out to some other places, been to, you know, looking at mushrooms in Southeast Asia. We just took a tour, a mushroom tour in Chile and South America with a colleague down there a couple years ago. And, you know, I would never get to see any of these places and, you know, certainly not as many of them had I not gotten in with, you know, this whole new world in mycology that opened up once the Fungi Magazine took off. So it's been pretty neat. And as I always tell people, well, you know, I I really don't get paid for doing stuff at all. And it can be a complete pain in the butt sometimes. But, you know, I'm always around people. I really enjoy being around, eat amazing food and see amazing things. And, you know, what could be better than that, really? You know, you can have all the money in the world, but what good's it going to do? you can't take it with you, but all of these experiences just been really wonderful
0: yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, and most people would pay exorbitant amounts of money to have those experiences, or you just couldn't so yeah, I think you definitely got very enriched, even if it wasn't with money out of fungi magazine um what was a watershed moment maybe for the magazine where you had something come out or you published something or maybe it was just you know something caught a much wider audience and people started subscribing, you know, what was a watershed moment you can remember?
1: Off the top of my head, I can't think of any like big watershed moment where the magazine took off. I can tell you about a couple of the most popular things we've done. The the most popular edition of the magazine by far, which pretty much caught me by surprise, was when we did a special topics Edition on um, the the group of magic mushrooms, the genus Psilocybe. You know, we didn't really want to put out an, a, you know another edition of High Times or anything, and <laughs> a bunch of stories of people's experiences. We just wanted to cover the science of that group of mushrooms, and and as I'd mentioned, we do a special topics on you know anything, any any group of mushrooms or mycologists or what have you. It's just whatever the topic is. So I got quite a few different experts that know about the chemistry of this group of mushrooms, the taxonomy, clinical research done with them, a whole bunch of different areas on this group of mushrooms, which uh, you know, this was before uh Michael Paul, This was what quite a few years before Michael Pollan's book, and, and before quite a lot of stuff has just in the last couple of years made it more mainstream. So, you know, we were prepared for. Quite a bit of interest. we were prepared for maybe some backlash. You know, people will be like, "Well, why are you covering this topic when there's so many others?" Or, you know, "I'm dead set against any type of drugs. Why are you doing this edition?" But when we uh, printed, I did a, a double print run because I figured it would be popular. As it turns out, it was by far the most popular edition of the magazine we've done. And as best as I can tell, it's the single most sold copy of a mycological journal ever in history, certainly ever in North America.
0: Congratulations, so, that's amazing!
1: Yes, and, and again, this is a topic which is so verboten that NAMA will never have speakers at a NAMA annual foray conference, they would never have speakers talk about it. These mushrooms were found in the wild, which they do occur around North America, if they're found in the wild and brought into the display table, they would quickly be whisked away because they're just so taboo and so illegal and so perceived to be dangerous or whatever uh, that just no one ever speaks about it. And yet there's a lot of interest. And again, this was even before Paulin's book. There's a lot of interest by the mainstream community about this. So, uh, you know, the typical issue we sell, however many thousands, I did a double print run and those sold out. It's been reprinted several times. And one time in front of an audience, I was saying how many tens of thousands of copies of this edition had sold. Someone in the audience said, "Oh, that's nothing. It's on the Arrowwood site. Posted the entire. Someone posted the entire edition there, and it's been downloaded like twenty thousand times. And that was that was like ten years ago. So I was just astounded by how interesting this topic was. So I thought we we definitely need to change our way of thinking about this whole topic and research in this area and everything that there's an interest in people to want to learn more and just to try them for themselves too A lot of people know they occur in nature they know they were completely legal and even a prescribed medicine up through the 50s and then something happened and then they were outlawed and no one's allowed to touch them anymore and people want to know what's what's going on there and want to try them out and so you know periodically now we do have articles them but, but that issue was really fun to do just because of how widespread and popular it was. Libraries you know a lot of university libraries get the magazine and like starting about a month after it was in print, I would get an email like every three or four days from a library saying so I don't think you sent us that copy we're missing it and you or in checking our records it did check in but now it's no longer here. Can you send us a replacement And so after this happened like five or six times, in like the first couple of weeks, I started telling the libraries. So here's the thing. The magazine's about magic mushrooms. You have college students there and you keep it out on the table where people can just get at it. It's going to disappear again. So, you know, you're going to have to put it under glass or something because I can't keep replacing these. And this is just what's going to happen. Apparently, I, I wasn't prepared for this and you weren't either. So it's nobody's fault that
0: It's a simple equation, guys. College students (laughs) its something about psilocybe. They're probably going to be interested in it. And that's something that I found as well, that there is still, even in the mycological community, there is still this wariness when it comes to the genus psilocybe. And for me, it's almost a bit of a shame because I think the mycological community could really be a voice who's kind of demystifying this mushroom, what it does, what the active compounds are, you know, because I think there would be a much more measured analysis of what this is versus when it's relegated to more like the high times type community. You don't get a very balanced and thorough analysis. So, and I've even had some guests who I've invited on on the show who see that I've done an episode or two, you know, and I kind of stay away from it for that reason, but I've done an episode or two uh, about decriminalization or about psilocybin. And people say, you know, I had a second thought when I saw that because I'm not really into that. It is funny how even amongst folks who just love fungi and mushrooms this one mushroom stands as as taboo even in that community of fungophiles.
1: Yeah it's it's pretty interesting it's, it's such a it's a large group of mushrooms they're all pretty small nondescript small brown species that just yeah. occur in out of the way parts of the world but and you know they're not toxic at all to humans you could eat grocery sacks of them and you would get higher would and be higher to a, right. cer- to a certain extent. And then, you know, no higher after that. And I suspect you could probably have, you know, upset stomach from eating so much fiber from mushrooms. but they're not toxic at all. Nevertheless, there's a hardly known mushroom, hardly seen, not toxic, but they're just so they've been so demonized so thoroughly by what happened apparently during the whole Summer of Love episode. And, you know, had things been different and had a counterculture and Vietnam and bras burning and a number of psychedelic drugs rose to prominence the way they did, you know, it would probably to this day, be like anything else and be a lot more researched and actual efficacious drugs developed from these. Because anyone that's ever eaten these sorts of things, whether you're into tripping or not, if you've ever tried them once you would not come away without thinking there's something in this organism that has an amazingly profound effect on the mind. You you couldn't have just a non-experience from eating a large dose of these things. So something that can control your mind and do such incredible things. I mean, surely chemists and researchers can figure out going forward, all sorts of different potential drugs. And, and we also know that clinicians were using them for a long time in the U.S., Canada, and other countries to treat tens of thousands of patients, and then because of this whole hippie backlash, and they just got a bad name and were outlawed. And it was the same with with cannabis as well. I'm not a, a pot smoker at all, but a drug that, for millions of people around the world, has such an, a profound effect. You know, there has to be something there besides just anecdotal experiences that the people that have benefits from it can't all be wrong or making stuff up. And and now we see going forward, you know, cannabis has become legalized in a lot of places and it does a lot of good for a lot of people. And The whole CBD thing is now exploding too. You know, there's lots and lots of people who are not into drugs whatsoever, but I mean, everybody knows people like this that, that will say I've tried everything and it didn't work. And I'm not for pot, but I've tried either marijuana or CBD and it has a really amazing effect on whatever pain or suffering they had. So there has to be something there. So, you know, the whole magic mushroom thing, you know, in the psychedelics, that's fine. But to, with a broad stroke, uh, cause them to be so illegal that people can't even study them, you know, or even talk about them. That's That's kind of preposterous, you know? Preposterous <laughs> is the right word for it.
0: And it yeah. just speaks to the power of that, demonization, I think. But I think we're much on the similar path as what's happening now with marijuana, where it's been culturally normalized. I think we're much on that same path with psilocybin, in no small part due to people like Michael Pollan, you know, all the various people who have brought forth this information. Now you have, obviously, the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic Mm -hmm. Research, and you have that new kind of responsible use paradigm emerging. Uh, But it's interesting, still the vestiges of that demonization cling on very strongly Very strongly indeed. You know, and as we're talking about Fungi Magazine, we're hinting at some parts of really popular kind of mainstream culture that intertwine with mushrooms and love of mushrooms. There is an undeniable explosion of interest in fungi that's happened in the U.S., but as I've talked with guests in really Anglophile countries, Australia and England as well, it's much the same. And There's been this eruption of interest in fungi culture. What do you think the future is of this emerging mycophile culture, and I know that's a big question, but I ask because you're someone who's in a focal point of fungi culture, a magazine all about fungi. Well, what do you see as as kind of the future there of how this is going to change society, or what what perspectives can you offer us?
1: Well, yeah, that's interesting. It really is taking off, and it's taking off in a whole bunch of different facets. There's Of course, just foraging in general, foraging for wild food has taken off again. It it was a big thing several decades ago and then people, I don't know, they got away from it and decided it was not clean or unhealthy or dangerous or whatever and then got more into growing their own food or even just getting into processed and purchased food. But we see a lot of people foraging now for plants and mushrooms and just everything really. So that's kind of cool. But uh, one thing that I see... Within the fungal fungophile community, is besides just the foraging for food, there's a lot of people who are interested in using fungi for like remediating uh, polluted areas or eroded areas, eroded from natural erosion or man made human induced erosion. There's even a term for, you know, mycoremediation using fungi to more naturally and benignly return habitats and, and restore them. So this is one of the things besides the psychedelics thing that I think is going to become really big. And I, I really hope it does. I hope people interested in in looking for wild mushrooms and you see social media just erupting with, can I eat this? I found this mushroom. You see a lot of people getting out into the woods. And I hope what this does is make everyone aware of our natural areas and realize how important they are and to be more, first of all, responsible, but also speak up for them. You know, the the habitats have been shrinking steadily. And if people get to the point where, wow, you know, the woods around me, I really like going in them, but they're kind of shrinking. And I've heard that the number of species are shrinking and the diversity is simplifying because the habitat's shrinking. Maybe people people will speak up and decide we need to set these places aside before they're gone. And uh, back on this micro-remediation topic that's become very hot just in the last few years and as you can imagine people you know Paul Stamos was one of the first sort of cheerleaders for the same and and woke people up to using fungi to restore polluted areas and uh, damaged habitats and eroded areas but there's also the whole idea of restoring forests after logging, after all the burns. We were talking about the fires that have been happening. And so, you know, stuff will go back to its uh, the way it was on its own. If you just keep your hands off of nature, it'll go back. But we know that you can introduce the certain native species to kind of get the ball rolling and speed things up. And fungi are a key player. The fungi that are saprobic can come in and start degrading a lot of the wood that's left and the other debris that's left and start turning it into soils. And then the the other fungi that are the obligate partners of the trees, they need to come in as well to help the trees get established in these denuded soils. So one area that I think is going to become a biggie as far as going forward with trying to tamp down climate change is the role of a lot of fungi in our environments, both in bringing the habitats back and and helping us hang on to the habitats we have. And you don't don't see too much stuff about it yet, but I think it's one of the things on the horizon that's going to be big. I know in some of the scientific journals are just starting to talk about the restoration after fires just in the last couple months. So you can kind of see this is where some people are wanting to get into research. Next year for the Telluride Mushroom Festival, I'm going to have this as one of our themes and and hopefully get some scientists to talk about this, because Colorado, where the festival happens, was really hard hit by fires, more so than ever before. In fact, the largest fire in the history of the state is burning right now. They're still trying to snuff it out. It's burned over half of Rocky Mountain National Park. Mm -hmm. And getting these habitats returned to normal so that all the other Organisms that live there can get back to thriving is going to be key. And it it sounds like uh, some people are thinking fungi are kind of the keys to getting that going. So keep an eye on habitat restoration. Besides the foraging and the medicinals and the psychedelics, I think this is another hot area where the mycologists are going to be in the news.
0: And I certainly think it's one that captures anyone's imagination when they first start looking into mushrooms. I know it was that way for myself. You just hit on the key ones that kind of start you on the journey. Oh, I can use these medicinally. Oh, I can grow these. for, And then you realize, oh, they can clean up the environment. Just a whole new level of perspective opens up because that is such a a pressing issue. I guess, do you see then that kind of grassroots interest and maybe some academics getting into it could lead to maybe some institutional adoption of these practices like the U.S. Forest Service, even things of of that nature? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. In the, just as a to return to the whole telluride mushroom festival that I mentioned a minute ago, where telluride is, the town of telluride has you know, it's surrounded by lots of mines. That whole area has been mined for all kinds of metals and minerals, and including the big mines that operate right in telluride. That's what the town was founded on. But all of these tailings that come out of the holes in the ground, you know, there's heavy metals and other things that pollute the waterways and the land. And so this was pretty much a super fun project to clean this up. Well, the Telluride Mushroom Festival, as well as the Telluride Institute and a number of other agencies, state and federal, have had running a test pilot study of a micro remediation of a, a badly contaminated area very near the town. And it's kind of cool to see how all this works. Again, these are all natural things in the environment that kind of come together to stop silt from leaking into the water and can kind of clean up stuff by breaking down things naturally and keeping things in place. So just as you mentioned, you know, you can get other agencies that have a problem that want to help pay to clean stuff up or find things out. Uh, If you can kind of pair them with people that have the know-how to do some of these studies. I know some of the people have been on your program have uh, interest in and experience with doing some of these studies. So this is, you know, this is revolutionary. When when I was a kid or coming up through college in the 80s, you, you'd never heard about any of these things. You know, there was one way to clean up stuff. And well, often that meant, you know, causing further damage, frankly. And, right. And uh, now people have kind of come full circle to just sort of doing stuff the natural way, how you would have done it, like on a farm or in your small village back in the old days. And you didn't have money to bring in a backhoe or a lot of big industrial type things, so it seems like it's a lot more benign. Right here at our house, I'm looking out the window, and I mentioned uh, before we got on the air. I used to have a farm in Wisconsin. Now we live kind of in the middle of this wetland preserve in the middle of a neighborhood. And what this area looked like in the '80s was a complete mess because it was all graded and and houses built and Our lot, as far as I've been led to believe, was sort of the last one because it was just trash, you know, trash in quotes. It was swampy and a tangle of trees and nobody wanted it. And, you know, you leave things on to go back to wild. And now it looks like it looked probably hundreds of years ago. And a lot of the water that drains from the rest of the neighborhood, which is full of fertilizer and stuff, it comes through my backyard with our wetland and everything. And the water coming out the other side is quite clean. You know, you can see eutrophication on our side because of all the nutrients in the water. But then further downstream, the other little ponds that are through the neighborhood, they're all real clean. So, I mean, you can see how this thing works. It's its not rocket science. It's just how nature works. If you put nutrients in the environment from human waste or lawn fertilizer, there's stuff that wants to eat it. And it explodes And then further downstream, you know, that's been taken out of the water and it's pretty clean. So I do grow some mushrooms here on straw and things for the table. But fortunately, the situation's not so bad that I have to do a cleanup with a Stamets-like cleanup. You know, it's already kind of done that slowly over the years. But in any case, it's just sort of, I guess, unlearning what we thought we knew and just learning to kind of go back to doing, let let nature do it has been doing all along.
0: That's the revolution. I mean, that's the revolution is listening to nature, letting natural processes take effect. And then, you know, on the applied side, maybe understanding them to the level where we can then leverage a natural process. That is the revolution. It's like we need to get out of the way and either let nature heal itself or aid in the natural processes that nature goes through if we feel like we need to accelerate or, yeah, like put some microfiltration in your
1: eutrophic water there or something like that. Yeah. When I was in grad school, uh, you know, I was in uh, ag sciences colleges at both Clemson and and Penn State. And so, of course, there were a lot of forestry majors and stuff. And you'd hear lectures or even have classes on stuff. And just always the term managing habitats and managing the forest was always used that's ridiculous what did what did these stupid wasteland forests do before humans came along and managed them and you know showed them how to grow properly? Talk about egocentric yeah, just just leave it alone. just don't do anything in fact, don't even go there just Best let it case grow. Scenario,
0: leave it alone yeah
1: yeah it'll it, the trees and everything know what to do they've been doing it for millions of years It's when you start going through and cutting roads or burning stuff upwind and I mean that's when you're altering things. But a forest on its own, of course, will will do just fine. How about we
0: try learning from the millions of year old <laughs> processes derived by nature over many, many, many attempts? You yeah. know, why don't we learn from that instead of thinking we know a better yeah. way? I, I think <laughs> everyone can I think everyone can get behind that that revolution Brit. I, I'm on that one. I hope so. And you mentioned Telluride Mushroom Festival. I know you're now the director of the nation's preeminent mushroom festival. Just give a brief synopsis for listeners what the Telluride Mushroom Festival is, maybe what the future of the festival looks like. I know this year was the first virtual festival and how folks can get involved.
1: So brief synopsis of what the Telluride Mushroom Festival is. So it's super cool. Perfect. That's all we need to know. was Was that too brief? Okay, that was too brief. Is it about mushrooms? Yeah, so the Telluride Mushroom Festival, which takes place in uh, about the middle of August in the southwest corner of Colorado in the really, really big, beautiful mountains. Telluride Mushroom Festival has been going on for 40 years. It's uh, anything mushroom and fungus goes. So talks on, talks, demonstrations, workshops, forays on anything, cooking, medicinal, toxic, psychedelic, literally anything, cultivated mushrooms, anything goes. It started 40 years ago as a psychedelics conference, whereby a physician in Denver brought in some pretty famous clinicians to have a forum to talk about psychedelics research and what the status was of psychedelics research, because there really wasn't an outlet for that back in those days. So it got to start doing that and then grew and grew and more and more people were coming wanting to learn about stuff like that, of course, but also wanting to know about eating wild mushrooms and cooking them. And it just kind of grew from this sort of clinical slash hippie event to a much larger, much, much larger clinical hippie and anything else in between event that it is today. So, you know, there's thousands of people that go today you know, there's over, I don't know, at a typical year, there's over like 200 different presentations, usually about 40 different presenters that go. So if you've been to a foray, like a lot of your uh, listeners probably have been to a mycological foray and there was maybe a presenter or two and you are taken into the woods and shown how to know different mushrooms. And maybe there's a, a cooking event to show how to prepare these things or whatever. Well, this is like that, but much bigger. You know, there's over 40 different presenters and over four or five days everything under the sun as far as demos and forays and and everything so pretty cool as you mentioned this year was the first virtual year we did have in person stuff for the few hundred people that we we told everyone not to come because there's danger of getting sick from covid-19 and there's still a few hundred people that insisted on coming anyway because you can't you just can't keep them away of course so we did yeah so we did have we did have a number of forays and and things like that that were socially responsible and had you know special rules on how to do all this and thankfully nobody got sick that was at the Telluride Mushroom Festival but typically in a year it's it's in person and then anything goes and there's a big parade and there's panel discussions there's just everything in between so people that have heard and never been you can go online and find videos on YouTube from stuff like this the movie know your mushrooms that came out quite a few years ago was sort of a documentary about it and uh, you mentioned larry evans larry evans was one of the stars of the show he's been coming to the festival for years way before i started going to the festival it's a pretty amazing happening if anyone that's ever been is usually pretty overwhelmed their first time just how many mushroom crazies there are and how many mushrooms there are it's it's pretty
0: cool There is nothing like that collective effervescence at that festival where all of Telluride becomes mushroom central. Everyone is into mushrooms. Everyone is into fungi. And you can be at a talk and sitting next to you, you know, it's like a Dennis McKenna or Peter McCoy or someone. So you're kind of like sharing in this collective effervescence with all these amazing mycophiles. I'm, I'm convinced you start learning things by osmosis and you think, how do I know that? I didn't even hear a talk about it. And you actually picked it up from someone who's in the audience there and then open mic nights, you know, poetry about fungi, little (laughs) spiritual ceremonies. It's, it's really a one of a kind event.
1: Yeah, it really is. And the first time I went, I was invited as a presenter and I had your reaction. It was, I was overwhelmed, a one of a kind event. It wasn't like any of the academic conferences I'd ever been to before. I'm like, there's a lot of people here who are really into wild mushrooms. This is really cool. This is These are my people. Yeah. And you mentioned Dennis McKenna and uh, Peter McCoy. And that's another thing that's so cool about the events because it goes on all day and night for several days. So you'll be walking from one venue, maybe at the library or the courthouse or the big auditorium to the park. And on the way, you'll see on the street people eating or having coffee or whatever. And it's some of the presenters and some of the people in the audience. So you have a great chance to just hang out with some of the real world experts. It's just the most fun and most enjoyable. And I always learn tons of stuff there. So it's just a a great thing. So when they needed a new director, they'd been asking me for a couple of years if I wanted to take on the role. Because, you know, again, I'm familiar with a lot of people in the mycological scientific community. So you know, I'd be able to, to tap people to come as presenters and stuff like that. So after a couple of years of being invited, I finally decided to take the plunge because I was a little worried at first because it is such a big event and a big budget and there's a lot that can go wrong. And what do I know about running something like that? But uh, of course, there's lots of people to help me and the whole Telluride Institute is spectacular and they know how to do the business and everything on on that end. And uh, so far, I haven't wrecked it yet. And I've been director for for five or six years and uh this year was a a struggle of course you know that was a new wrinkle that we had to contend with just doing the whole virtual thing having all the lectures zoom presentation from people all over north america and wherever the the presenters were and and getting that all together but it came off really really well and i don't think we lost too much money this time so we'll be back in action and 2021. And uh, even if everything's all back to normal and in person, we're still going to continue going forward with uh, a virtual presence because we've had so many people all over the world that that told us, you know, I've always wanted to go, but there's no way I could travel from Australia or Poland or Germany because I don't have that kind of money. But I was able to dial in this year and catch all the different presentations. It was really cool. So rest assured, we're going to do both, you know, from now on, both in person and in virtual. That was so that was one benefit, I guess, that came out of 2020.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that's a really good outcome is that now it's going to be digital so more people can get involved. And I think you guys did do a terrific job. And there's something still really intimate about being like one on one with a speaker on the Zoom meeting. You know, you're able to ask questions in real time. There's a lot you can do with digital. So I have a feeling you guys will find this great hybrid where people will go will still get that kind of contact high for being around all these mushroom lovers, (laughs) but then people digitally will still get the download of all this amazing information. Uh, And what's it been like for you to gradually transition into one of the leading figures in this growing and growing mycology movement? Like I said, if anyone's been to mushroom festivals, at least from what I've seen, when I go around here to San Francisco or different events, there's always Brit, there's always a fungi magazine (laughs) table. So like, what's that been for you to become this pretty big pillar in the mycology community. How exciting is that for you?
1: Well, it's, it's exciting just because it's allowed me to uh, meet people that I wouldn't have otherwise and, and become friends with people all of, just all over the world. I could, tomorrow, if I had an emergency meeting for whatever reason or a funeral or anything, any emergency that uh, could happen on the east coast or the west coast or really just about anywhere i could call someone that i've that i've become friends with and stayed with and say hey tomorrow i need a place to stay in in san rafael or somewhere is that possible and they would say oh yeah that absolutely just come on out and just drop what you're doing and come on out so i've just met so many friends you know lots of friends lots of really really good friends that there's no way i would have known otherwise and it's It's just a really tight knit community. And anytime you go to a mushroom club foray or the Nama foray or the Telluride mushroom festival, everyone says the same thing. They're like, it's like this family I have where we get together, like, you know, once or twice a year, or maybe once every other year, but it's just really tight knit. And we have a lot of similar things in common that, that we like to do. And most people in society thinks I'm weird and what I do is weird, but right here with, with all these people, we all like the same thing. We're all weird together. So that's been really, really great as far as that goes. It'd be neat if it paid, it paid some money, but, you know, money's not any not everything. So I, you know, I definitely get a lot more enjoyment out of the people I've met and the money that I could have gotten from doing some other career.
0: The family that's weird together stays together <laughs> or something like that is what I'm taking I guess away. I so,
1: yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely closer with lots and lots of people in the mycological community than uh, anyone in my family. I mean, except for my my wife and children. I'm obviously very close with them. But my other relatives, you know, if they were more into mushrooms, I might be closer with them. But, you know, <laughs> got to get with it.
0: <laughs> right. You got to be into fungi. And what I've found as well is that it's relatively easy to be part of the family. I mean, it's a family where... The adoption process is pretty quick. If you show up and say you're into mushrooms, <laughs> yeah. It, you're, you're brought in.
1: Yeah, it's pretty quick. You know, you show up at a foray, you're the first uh, first time ever you've been and you're the one that comes in with the big basket of morels or hens of the woods. You're pretty much in because you obviously know <laughs> something and everyone wants to know what you know. Yeah, yep, that's it's that easy, that adoption process.
0: <laughs> I love that idea. A big family of mushroom lovers. And I guess you know, we've talked about microremediation. Are there any other areas about mushrooms or fungi that are really catching your attention right now? You know, maybe a future focus of a magazine, without giving too much away. Anything in particular standing out that you're really focused on?
1: There's several other kind of areas that are on the horizon that are getting kind of exciting. The the really hot topics right now, of course, and when we mentioned these, the the psychedelics and the medicinals and the microremediation. And habitat restoration and also just habitat preservation. So, people that see the forest as having value now because they like to go there and pick free food or whatever, you know, that hopefully gets a lot of people interested in setting aside habitat. But just some other areas there's new movement afoot to build things out of, build materials out of fungi and mycelium as well which is kind of a cool idea it kind of started out with people trying to come up with better ways to make eco-friendly packing materials and stuff like that so if you remember i don't know how old you are but i think must have been the 80s or 90s there was the movement to try to get rid of styrofoam and find other replacements for styrofoam and and some of these things that don't break down so People hit on using recycled paper and stuff like that as packing material, but also like cornstarch, like packing peanuts. And you still see these to this day. You know, this cornstarch, you can just throw it in the sink or throw it in the toilet or just throw it out on your lawn. And when it gets wet, it'll just fall apart. And it's just cornstarch. So it's naturally biodegradable. But then there was other things coming on the market as well. And I started seeing, it was in the 2000s. I started seeing stuff coming my way and I'm like, what the heck is this stuff? It looks like molded styrofoam, but I could tell it was not styrofoam. And then I started seeing articles showing that people were growing mycelium of, I don't know what, all kinds of different mushrooms on some sort of recycled cellulosic material. So wood chips or sawdust or straw or something. And the, the fungus starts growing and then you like scrunch that into a mold And you can make this styrofoam-like material out of it. It's totally biodegradable, and I presume it could be cheaply made, but at least it was biodegradable. and wasn't styrofoam. So I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And they started noticing, well, this stuff has pretty good insulation properties. So maybe there's other things we can use in building materials for that. And then people were even making boards and other things out of it and showing how you could make small buildings out of this stuff. I've been to museums and some other places where there were whole buildings and and archways and stuff made all these blocks of this stuff. I thought, well, that's pretty cool because you could just simply grow this material into any shape that you wanted. Again, it's biodegradable. So when you get done with it, just throw it in your garden or you could burn it or bury it or anything and you don't have to worry about contaminants in the environment. So, I haven't seen too much new stuff lately, but I do know there's a bunch of companies, Ecovative is one, that are studying this sort of thing as far as other materials made out of fungal products for construction. Likewise, there's synthetic leathers and things like that that are now being made out of fungi, and they are it's uncanny how similar they are to actual skins taken off of dead animals, which, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea. Right. And I mean, there's just, it's not sustainable. I mean, there's there's not enough animals to feed us and to produce leather.
0: Exactly. And I think the one that stands out in my mind recently, I mean, he's been at it for a long time, is Phil Ross and MicroWorks and their new made with Rishi product. I mean, you if you saw a picture of that, you couldn't tell it wasn't traditional leather.
1: I've felt the stuff and everything. You, you couldn't tell it wasn't leather. Yeah, It's really astounding and it's pretty and it's very durable. And again, you know, stuff like that, when it starts out, of course, it's expensive until everyone's doing it and it's scaled up. Literally, the sky's the limit on stuff like that, because we already have all the acres on earth that are put into agriculture. There's only the amount of uh, meat we're making now is really about as much as we can make.
0: And there's no more more people
1: all the time. It's a limited supply. If we had twice as many people now, which will happen pretty soon, uh, there's just not enough meat and not enough animals. There's not enough leather and these other materials. So, I mean, you're going to have to come up with more sustainable ways, either because you're clever and want to corner the market or simply because you have to, because there's just not enough. That's just the way it goes. So when I was, I remember when I was an undergrad and in high school, there was I remember when we hit 2 billion people on the planet. That was a biggie. That's not that long ago. No, it's not. So you started seeing books that were blockbusters, like the population bomb and stuff like that coming out that were predicting in another 50 years, there would be, you know, 5 billion people. And I just, I would think, well, that's not possible because there's 2 billion people on the planet now and we're running out of resources and there's the air pollution's really bad and just all these things. Well, we're way beyond that and just no end in sight. The last I saw, I think we're now at what, 7.2 billion? Yeah, I know it was over 7 billion, yeah. Yeah, so for people listening, again, I'm not that old. I'm in, I'm in my 50s, early 50s. So went from the 80s 2 billion people on the planet. And you can look. people can look this up. I remember when we hit 4 billion and 5 billion. And now we're over 7 billion, just in my lifetime. You know, the, a lot of the countries are slowing down, but a lot are not. So there's, there's going to be a lot more people still. So, you know, people are having to come up with ways to make a lot of stuff more sustainable. You, I mean, you just have to.
0: Well, and I know that that population explosion has confronted us with a lot of Really big decisions in terms of worldview and social dynamics. And, you know, are we overpopulated? How do we deal with that? And I love the idea that the uses of fungi, like you're talking about as a material, as some of these solutions could just explode to accommodate a bigger population. Because for me, I like to take on the worldview that humans are probably the most magnificent thing that we know of in terms of our ability to create and our ability. So having more of us is not intrinsically a bad thing. And I think actually having more of us could lead to solutions and all these eventual, you know, colonizing the universe and all that only comes with more people. Uh, so I love the idea that we're going to have a solution that can grow maybe as fast as us, mycelium. I mean, mycelium grows really fast. I don't know We'll have to see who who can who can grow faster, but that that we can grow <laughs> solutions out of my ceiling that can accommodate that and lead to, you know, something that I I see as really a good outcome, which is more people. And I, like I said, I know that's a big decision. Where there's some people like, no, we need less people. We have too many. I'm like, well, I, I like to think that you know it's not the people that are the problem. We're just not being creative enough yet. And mm-hmm. fungi really really offer that new avenue.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said. The people by themselves aren't necessarily causing all the problems, but for sure, some of the people on the planet now, and some that haven't even been born yet, will have really good solutions for stuff. There's been a lot of talk just in the last few years of, at least in this country, of you know, returning to the good old days of, of this and that. And I think good old days might be code for something else, but for sure, the good old days are right now. Right yeah. now, there's fewer chances of you dying from being maimed and injured and killed in factories and pollution and while some things seem really bad now the best time to be alive for a human is w- without a doubt right now and going forward i believe in 50 or 100 years it'll be even better because we keep coming up with solutions to problems so yeah i don't i don't think too many people is necessarily the problem and i don't even know what too many means, and and that's also kind of the danger too. You know, as as populations have doubled, I mentioned going from two million to four million and five uh, billion, and now seven. Just in my lifetime, I think I don't know if it was Malthus or who said, you know, sort of like as a population of anything grows, there's this doubling time. And the last generation before there's too many, there was only half. You know, half of the environment was full. If if you're considered like ducks on a pond two ducks arrive and they stick around for a season and then another season, you know, you go from two to four and pretty quickly the ponds half full a pond half full. is still a lot of space for those ducks, but one more generation of doubling. Now the pond's completely full and there's no resources and you're choked on your own waste and everything else. So that's kind of the danger. You never know when you're at carrying capacity and even beyond it. Until it's too late. Until it's too late. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we have to be concerned uh, with that sort of thing. But I think your point about humans being able to figure out things and come up with better ways of doing stuff. I mean, that's what humans have been doing ever since. That's why humans are everywhere now. You know, there are other organisms pretty good at living in their habitat. In fact, the most adapted to their, their habitat. I mean, fish are more adapted to living in water than humans are. But humans are more adapted and adaptable to living a lot of different places and figuring stuff out, even where they're not best adapted, they can still figure out how to make a go of it, Where, whereas a fish couldn't or a fly couldn't or whatever. Humans are pretty good at figuring stuff out and hopefully we will continue going forward with coming up with sustainable ways of doing stuff. And I know fungi are going to be a large part of that.
0: It's inescapable to think that fungi are going to be a huge part of that moving forward. And I think you've elucidated that really well for us. Well, moving from that giant macro scene down to kind of the micro of, of Brit and the little bit of your future here, what, what are any uh, future plans that you have? I know you talked about a future plan for the magazine in terms of kind of offering this digital side of things. Do you have any ideas for maybe like an online repository of old issues or I guess
1: what's what's on the horizon for you? So the horizon for me and, and Fungi Magazine, since you mentioned Fungi Magazine in particular, we are... Just now starting to get into publishing books and have launched the Fungi Press, we uh, had sort of a little compendium book we came out with a couple years ago. And then earlier this year, uh, we came out with a large compendium book on the amonitas of North America. So people that are crazy about ammonitis uh, academically, or even just on the amateur level and want to learn about amanitis, this has been a wildly popular book. We have another book coming out this fall on, it's a guidebook on mushrooms of one region of North America. And I'm kind of keeping that as a, a secret until it comes out. I just had uh, with a co author a book, the Emanitas book I co authored with an author in Arkansas. And then I have another book coming out with a different publisher, kind of a beginner's book that has all kinds of stuff that a beginner would want to know, sort of a complete handbook on mushrooming. That's coming out by Corey Books, and it's actually available now. You can pre-order now, and it starts shipping, I think, the first week of December. You can order that. So that's pretty exciting. But getting back to Fungi Magazine, stuff we have coming besides these books we're rolling out, and hopefully a few more in upcoming years, we have... A compendium of the first 10 years of editions because some are out of print now. Sometimes we reprint and sometimes we don't reprint. So we have a compendium of the first 10 years of magazines that people will be able to buy. That'll be available pretty soon. You can just download it on your computer and have all the first 10 years on your computer. So that should be pretty fun. Yes, that's my dream. (laughs) I was really hoping you'd say that. Yeah, and it's just gotten too expensive to be reprinting back issues and shipping them to people. With, you know, this digital, you know, you can buy it on a flash drive or whatever that will have, you can put it on your computer, you can search it more easily. And for people that do want back issues, most of our back issues are still available, but you know, they're not going to always be around because we've now printed in 13 years, we've now had, I think like 56 editions or something like that. So it's kind of getting to be a burden to kind of keep all of those in stock, as you can imagine. Right. So anyways, those are those are exciting things for Fungi Magazine coming on the horizon, getting into books and some other things like that.
0: Really exciting. And I think all of us are waiting and hoping that that one region that you teased us with is our region, because I know <laughs> that we all need better and better mushroom books. Can't it have enough. Might,
1: where, where you're sitting right now, it might be your region. That's all I'm going to say. But if uh, if listeners are unfamiliar with Fungi Magazine and, and do want to get more information or see what we do have already in stock and in print and whatnot, the website is FungiMag.com and we have the store there and all the issues always have some free content posted every time we come out with a new edition. There's always some free articles to read online, full text and other fun stuff like that, sometimes videos and things. So there's a bunch of things that go on there. Fungi Magazine has uh, a very popular Facebook page. It's one of the most popular of all the mushroom-based Facebook pages. There's, I forget, like 22,000 members on that page. So if you are the type that, well, you don't really want to take the plunge to buy a magazine or whatever, but you did find a weird mushroom in your yard and want to get it identified, yeah, you can post a picture on Fungi Magazine Facebook page and have it identified literally in seconds. You know, As you know from going on, Facebook, the the mushroom smarty pants sort of are like rivals and want to see who can identify something faster than someone else. So you can usually get something identified just in seconds time. It's it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool tool. It's really
0: mind blowing. And I've encouraged people who tell me "Ah, I don't have Facebook. I'm like, you should make one just because (laughs) if you're going to hunt wild mushrooms, that is the best way to get things identified. And you'll have renowned experts, like you said, within seconds, within minutes, jumping on your find and giving you an ID. It's almost unbelievable. So people then can connect with Fungi Magazine, FungiMag.com and on your guys' Facebook page. And I guess, Britt, do you have a personal TikTok page where you do little dances with
1: mushrooms or anywhere we can <laughs> connect with you directly? Uh, I think I'm too old for that. I, I've <laughs> heard of TikTok and know what it is. I am not TikTok famous, but I do uh, know what TikTok is. But that's something my kids tell me is a thing. So I don't know. Maybe I'll have to get with it one of these days.
0: Okay, but for now, <laughs> we're not going to see Brit doing any doing any TikTok dances. It's no. a shame. We all missed out. The world is poorer for it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm going to ask some questions that I like to ask all my guests. And I have a feeling you have some great answers. And the first one is a mushroom that you love that you want to share with us and why. And it can be a little befuddling because some people say, I could never pick a favorite. So no pressure on that front. It doesn't have to be a favorite, but
1: just uh, a mushroom that you love and why. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's like your kids. You, you uh, love them all equally, or at least you tell everyone that. One that I particularly have, have become particularly fond of in the last few years is a species of Amanita. And I'm quite into Amanitas because they're so pretty and mostly large. And there's lots and lots of species, so it's a really neat group. But one in particular that I really like is a species that was unknown to science that I discovered a few years ago up in the northwest part of Wisconsin in a wilderness area. So I've become quite smitten with it because collecting it every year, I now I know it so well that you know, you can point to a certain kind of a tree that's a certain species of tree, a white, a white pine in a certain age. And you just see the habitat looks about right. You can tell someone, you know, there will be one or more underneath that tree. And this is what that mushroom looks like. And you can just walk right over and find them. It's it's pretty neat to get so in tune with how this thing grows. And yet it was unknown to science up until just a few years ago. So the name hasn't been published yet. Hopefully this is going to be the year we're going to formally describe and, and name it. But the uh, common name we've given it is the Northwoods Grisette, and the scientific name that we use when referring to it, although again it's only a provincial name at the moment, is Emanita Schwamagonensis, which nice. is sort of a tongue twister, but it's named for the Schwamagon Nicolay National Forest where it's where it's from. So that's my wow. favorite, this Northwoods Grisette. It's it's very pretty, rather tall and slender and graceful, and the top of it's zonate colored different shades of brown. So it looks like a, a bullseye, like a target almost. It's kind of it's kind of bizarre looking.
0: Oh, I knew you'd have a, a fantastic answer. <laughs> and of course you did. But they're Brit, all really Barry cool. Own Amanita.
1: Yeah, they're all really cool. And I like going to forays with clubs and stuff. And people like me to go on forays often because, well, you, you it was a bad year or you didn't find the edibles that you were looking for. But we did find this one weird thing that no one's ever heard of before. And you know, all the mushrooms have stories, and because I've been around a long time and around a lot of really good, really great mycologists, I've picked up a lot of stories. So even little bitty mundane mushrooms very often have a really neat story. So that's why it's really hard for me to pick anyone that's especially, you know, a standout because they all have a lot of really interesting things about them.
0: They're all like old friends for you in a in a certain yeah. way. yeah. And then a bigger general question: What has this relationship with fungi and with mushrooms given to you and and brought to your life? How has it enriched your life?
1: Well, just kind of returning to the whole notion that I've met so many great friends and had my life enriched in that aspect. Other people with similar interests that I would never have met, you know, otherwise, just all over North America and even the world. You know, I'm just really lucky and fortunate that this sort of thing is fallen into my lap, and I've been able to meet so many great people from all over the world. You go on Facebook and social media, there's a bunch of people that are pretty disagreeable, and people are like, God, I would not want to be around that person. They're just so awful in this way or that way. But that's the minority of people. Most people are actually really nice and, and interesting and have passions and you know stuff about them that are very redeemable, and you'd want to... You know, want to make friends with them. And so, this whole fungal community has allowed me to meet a whole bunch of people that I wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Getting to know mushrooms helped you find your human family. Yeah. Can't ask much more from a non human organism than that. And then, what is the lasting impact that you hope to make with your work, you know, both with your academic work and also with Fungi Magazine?
1: Oh, well, that's, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, so, with my academic work, I've hoped hope to try to bring to light kind of an interesting symbiosis that really not many people are very interested in, but I think it's pretty interesting and it's not really of economic importance or anything like that, but it's just one more part of nature. That's really kind of fascinating and just shows how so many things are intertwined. Likewise with the magazine, you know, I'm hopeful that we can just bring to light fungi to the the more greater masses. There's a lot of people that there was no outlet for them to read about fungi or learn a lot of stuff. And I think that's why the magazine's been so popular. So I think that's what the job is we're doing with Fungi Magazine. And hopefully we'll be able to continue that. That's the one thing that I've I really would have liked, you know, at the outset with the first issue that we did a long time ago, you know, I would have liked to have brought something to the general population that's a way for them to learn about and appreciate and get a better understanding for fungi. And going forward, I think we've been successful doing that, and we'll hopefully continue to do that.
0: Yeah, we're in the newest age of exploration. And I certainly think you're on the front lines of that in every sense. And I know you said there's no economic benefit. And I always like to add the little caveat that we know of yet.
1: I I think so
0: much of the fungal research right now uh, because I'm always hungry for what's the applied method when I talk with a researcher? What's the applied use? And it's like, well, you need to discover the fundamentals of how these basic questions, like you said at the beginning, we need to understand how these basic questions of biology work. And who knows what secrets are locked in there? Who knows how impactful it's going to be? So we're at an exciting age of discovery and you are definitely doing a massive job in, in ushering it in. So Britt, thank you so much for all the work you do. And thank you so much for joining us and being so gracious with your time here on The Mushroom Hour. It was an absolute pleasure.
1: Oh, well, pleasure was all mine. It was it was great to talk about it, and nice to uh, chat with you on the airwaves here.